Podcast One production. The Health Hacker with Adam McDougall. This is a Health Hacker interview where we find out from inspiring people who have hacked their lives, how they did it, and pass on the knowledge on to you. In this episode, we're speaking to Amanda Archibald, a dietitian, a nutritionist, who's taking food science out of the lab and into the kitchen, using DNA to determine what we should put on our plates and even how to cook it as well. Adam? I'm very excited about today. I love my food, love cooking, and I tell you what... Love spending time with people that are much smarter than me. Welcome, Amanda. How are Thank you? Thank you. Thank huh? you. <laughs> uh, well, you're looking healthy and well. Thank um, you. <laughs> why are genes so important to what we eat and, and how we prepare our food? So our genes are the master directors of everything in our body. So uh, genes create proteins. They mm-hmm. basically hold the recipe for proteins, a unique recipe for each protein. So proteins we like to think of in terms of structural, but they're also doers. So mm. let's, can I give you an analogy yep, for this? So, so because it's easier for people to understand why genes are so important when you understand what proteins do. So we think about building a house. At least I can talk from the U.S. You build a house, <laughs> you dump uh, basically the rafters and all the materials for building the house on, you know, your building site, on mm. your lot, as we call it. So those building materials are basically the infrastructure for the house. But the only way you get the house built is by having like your carpenters and your plumbers, the the people who are experts to put the house together, right? Mm-hmm. With the nail guns or whatever, electric uh, electricians, et cetera. So your proteins, think of your proteins as being the materials that are the infrastructure for your house or the framework, yep. but they're also the doers. So the doers in your body are enzymes, do genes basically hold the recipe to create the structure and the construction workers in your body? Without genes, there's no life. So the genes is like the blueprint. Your genes are your blueprint. Right. So and everyone's that, looking to that and they figure out where all the material goes and how I'm going to nail it and how I'm going to build correct. it. Correct. And our blueprint, each one of us has a unique blueprint. So we start with you as a human being with this blank sheet of paper and your DNA builds you, which is why the Human Genome Project was so important. Mm. Uh, as scientists will say, it gave us the map for how human beings are built. That's genius, right? Yeah. And it's only like 20 years old. And that was a game changer for you, wasn't it? It was a game changer for the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it, it was like, it was... Uh, it was like a billion dollars for the first person and then it sort of, you know, the opposite of Moore's Law got cheaper and, and easier to do along the pretty, way. Pretty, yeah, in terms of DNA testing, but the discovery was like, a, or the actual project was multinational, right? It was an international project. And yeah, finally we landed on the map of how human beings are built. And we're still learning. You know, we have, what, what 22,500 genes with who knows how many different millions of combinations. That's what's exciting. We can now look at you as a human being and see how you're built. So how do we hack our genes? How do we figure out what our genetic makeup is? So, uh, and that's the field of genomic testing, So, uh, which, which we look at in a number of different ways. So genomic tests will basically look at um, your DNA, and it depends on the company, okay? We, so you're never going to get the same DNA test from one company to the next because they'll decide on how they're interpreting the research for which genes they're going to report on. But basically, we're able to, through genomic testing, 
look at your biochemical wiring, if you will. So, so let's look at what that means. So if you think of a smartphone, this is the easiest way for people to understand, you know. <laughs> remember the, Yeah, analogies. Remember like those of us who were like early on in computers, you could kind of lift the back off your laptop or whatever, or your tower, and you could see the circuit board, right? So now we have to go to smartphones. Like if you take your battery out, you know, you suddenly realize that your, your phone doesn't work anymore and that battery is instrumental to, um, you know, the lighting, whether you can add audio, you know, whether your apps show up, download or whatever. So just like your smartphone has its own motherboard and it's fired up by the battery. So the way the human body works is biochemistry um, and biochemistry is fired by your genes. So bottom line is when we look at genomic testing, we're able to see how your genes are working uh, to produce proteins that inform these different circuits in your body. Mm. They switch okay. things on. They switch things on and they switch things off. And when what we're able to do, um, at, when we're looking at genomic information, we're able to see patterns. So those of us who work in genomics, we have to understand pattern recognition. You, we can, and it's interesting because training clinicians, they can be the smartest clinicians out there, just like mathematicians. But if you can't see patterns, how things interrelate in biochemistry, you can't do genomics. Because you're looking to see how these genes inter intersect and produce these effects throughout the body. Kind of like um, when a wheel gets out around, you get a flat tire on your bike. It's like, yeah, <laughs> you know, it's a little sluggish. Well, it's the same with your genes. They produce proteins and sometimes the proteins aren't very efficient. And that affects how basically the body uh, moves information around it. And this has been the game changer, isn't it? Combining yeah. the genomics with the nutritional side of it. Correct. Because obviously nutrition in, and when you, whatever you eat is information for the body and the cells. Yes. Yes. So can you tell us about the combination of these two? Yeah, this is where it's genius. So genomics is the study or the science of how uh, what genes do, how mm -hmm. they function and what functions they impact in the body. Okay, so that's sort of the foundation. Mm -hmm. But Genes fundamentally operate through food, as you pointed mm. out. So, what we that so the field of nutrigenomics, and so genomics looks at genes. Nutrigenomics is nutrition plus genomics. Mm. How does the food and the different components of food impact how genes operate? Because food can turn genes on; it can turn genes off. Mm. Sometimes, most of the time, we want them turned on. Sometimes, we want to turn them off. So, we can now choose food based on what we're trying to target in the body. Incredible, isn't it? So people used Genius. to look. Genius. Yeah. And people we're still look, learning, right? Yeah. So it's not like, oh, we have the answer. We, we got to the end. <laughs> we're not. So can I get an example of what food someone can choose to switch on or off a gene in their body? Yeah, you can. So it's not about necessarily just what gene. It's what process do we want to implement. So you have to okay. think downstream. Mm. And I think it's important just before I answer that question to also acknowledge that other things influence how your genes operate. Mm. The environment we live in, critical. Yeah. Connectivity as human beings, essential. Yeah. Exercise absolutely impacts how genes operate. Mm. So The real holistic approach is we find out more and more on this show, it's the sum of many parts is the silver bullet. It's not just the silver bullet by itself. Correct. Food is not everything. And I would say, you know, I'm going to be presenting at this bioceutical conference uh, about um, the, the the genomics, what we the blue zones. You're probably mm. familiar with the blue zones and longevity. How do we now look at longevity research through the lens of genomics? And I will tell you that 50%, this is my perspective, of um, longevity is impacted by connectivity. Yeah, I found right? that as well. And probably yeah. something you guys talk about a well, lot. Yeah. Community. Community, Social togetherness. Connection. So it would be really cool to talk mm. about that. But um, so the question is, what 
Give an example of a gene or a process that's turned on or off by food. So one of the things we know about disease or disease is that oxidative stress um, is kind of a, a foundation towards disease. Mm. D-I-S, like hyphen ease, mm. disease. Disease. Um, like right? Disease. <laughs> not disease. Disease. Like you're not at ease. Uh. So, um, so oxidative stress uh, informs inflammation. Inflammation informs oxidative stress. It's probably your listeners know this if they've been listening no, to no, you, No, no, right? this is great. No, they, they want to learn this stuff. So All right. Well, let's, let, let, yeah. I'm going to answer this question. So let's go back and talk about oxidative stress. So oxidative stress, is like fire in the body, mm-hmm. right? Or it's like rust, if you will. And just and so the analogy is, if you are <laughs> one of these people, you can, you're in one of those parking lots and the, the parking spaces are like very narrow and you back your car out and there's a concrete post or inevitably there's something that shouldn't be there and you back your car into that, you dent your car, right? And if you dent the paint and you don't fix it and it gets it gets humid here in Sydney, right? Yep. It rains. Yep. What happens when, you know, the dent is exposed to rain? It rusts, right? And so oxidative stress in the body is akin to rust. So one of the things we can do through food is help the body turn on its own fire hose in the body to extinguish rust. And we can do that by uh, specific foods that contain um, a bioactive that we can create, which you've talked about sulforaphane, right? Yep. So our crucifers, so those of you who like to slink past the crucifers in the grocery store, you now have to stop. So can you <laughs> break down for people who are new to the podcast what crucifers are yeah, and what foods they're work? the things that you like to not put in your basket, right? <laughs> so let's be real. They are the Brussels sprouts. Yep. There's actually tons of them. And you guys, because So I'm, what is a crucifer? Crucifer is a, a member of the, it's a, a vegetable. Mm-hmm. So it's a member of the brassica family. Yep. What's in there? Cauliflower, kale, collards, mustard greens. How about all your radishes? A lot of your Chinese uh, uh, cabbages, which you would have here in Australia. Wombok, like, Wombok. There's, and You call them swede, I think. Yeah. We call them rutabaga in America. Yep. It took me forever to figure out what a rutabaga was because yeah, yeah. I grew up in England. So, um, And turnips. So there's a turnips, lot of these yep. vegetables, right? So they contain a family of compounds called glucosinolates. Okay, mm-hmm. so we're going to be scientifically correct <laughs> because that's important. So yeah. glucosinolates, when you cut them in your kitchen or you chew them, um, some magic happens in the body, and we produce this compound called uh, sulforaphane. Sulforaphane is able to turn that fire hose on in the body, uh, which is far more effective at extinguishing oxidative stress than any antioxidant you can ever eat. Mm-hmm. So here's the analogy. If you have a fire, do you want to put it out with a teacup of water or a fire hose? Mm-hmm. So your teacup is when you eat your Vegetables that are rich in vitamins A, C, and E, right? So that's akin to putting a teacup of water in your, you know, to extinguish a fire. Yep. When you eat cruciferous vegetables and you prepare them, prepare them in a certain way or specific way, like I just talked about, we can talk more about that. Yeah. Um, you actually turn on your own body's fire hose system. That is what. We know through genomics. Okay, so let's talk about the preparation of how do we, let's say the foods are all the water, how do we turn it into a really powerful hose through the way we are preparing it and then eating it? It's a great question. So, And there's a lot of science around this. So my field is uh, nutrigenomics, how food works with your genes, but also what you do with it in the kitchen. We're talking about the culinary side. Culinary genomics. So this is where the rubber meets the road. It's where you go to... Um, 100%, which I always tell people, you can be at 95th percentile, how do you go to the 100th, you know, the end of the bell curve? So 
Um, so the first thing with your cruciferous vegetables is to know that um, if you eat them raw, if you cut them, so let's say you're making a slaw. So I like to use the example of bok choy. So those of you who are afraid of cruciferous vegetables because you had the overcooked Brussels sprouts by some member of your family at some point <laughs> in your life, right? We've all been there and done that. Um, so, so one of the things we can actually do is take something like a bok choy, a baby bok choy, a big bok, bok choy, mm-hmm. a tat soy, pak choy, right? They're yep. fairly um, mild-tasting crucifers. Um, so when we cut them, if we make a slaw, and we finally cut a cabbage or a bok choy. What we've actually done there is we created a chemical reaction. There's not fire in your kitchen. Okay, it's a chemical reaction whereby an enzyme, remember one of those proteins, actually interacts with one of the compounds, glucosinolates, mm-hmm. in your crucifers, and it creates sulforaphane. Just by dicing it up finally. Just by dicing it up. So that's you a defense cr- mechanism from the plan, isn't it? That, that it is. That. Yeah, yeah, you're talking about what I'm talking about with these, uh, something like sulforaphane. They're yep. called polyphenols or mm-hmm. phytochemicals, and I call them bioactives. Mm, Much okay. easier. Bioactives Much easier. is Bioactives easier. Is easier. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is, yeah. And so if what's interesting, you know, it's funny. Yeah, keep me on track because I'm going to go off here in food science <laughs> and I'm going to come back. Um, but what's interesting about bioactives is um, they don't have any nutritional value. They're not vitamins, they're not minerals, and they don't have any calories too. So that's mm. a good score, right? But they also induce something called the hormetic response. Mm. So the hormetic response is actually toxic. You know, so if you were to, there's a reason why we don't eat a pound of rosemary in a day because it would be absolutely toxic to us as humans. But bioactives, to your point, are, are, they are part of the plant's defense mechanism, so a tiny bit solicits a huge response, and those tiny bits solicit a response with our genes. That's what's genius about it. So um, in the kitchen then, if we cut our cabbage or our bok choy or whatever, or even our Brussels sprouts, we induce that response, and we produce sulforaphane. So here's the thing. If you were immediately going to stir-fry or a microwave, or heaven forbid, boil that food. <laughs> Do people still boil anything? Uh, you know, you know, potatoes, right? Potatoes, you know, boil yeah. our spuds. <laughs> if you were to immediately cook your freshly sliced kale, collards, or whatever, um, you would actually not produce the sulforaphane mm. um, because heat from cooking denatures that process I just talked about. Mm. So it denatures, what's another word, harms it, renders it inefficient, or kills it. Mm-hmm. Yep. So what's your way around it? So your way around it is something called hack and hold, which you probably talked about before, right? Yeah, expand on that. It's great. So hack and hold, it's not like getting a machete in your kitchen, okay? <laughs> <laughs> hack and hold is basically if you cut your crucifers and you set them aside, then you can, and you go on and do another part of your recipe and come back, or if you do this in the morning and put your meal together in the evening, you've actually let enough time pass for sulforaphane to be created. Mm. Sulforaphane is more heat resistant. So you can have your crucifers and eat them too. Yeah, Does that make sense? Makes great sense. And tell them, it's, they say about 45 minutes. Is that how long you like to leave? 45, yeah. And you know, the science is what you kind of keep tracking it with science. So there's ways around it. 60 minutes seems to be optimal, but hey, let's be real. You yep. still got yep. some produced at 30 minutes, okay? Yep. So let's be real. It's, it's, it's exciting, isn't it? That We've got these hacks around it as well. So when you go for a big shop, is there another hack that you can actually cut your vegetables up, then put them in the fridge? Yeah, and you can. Yeah, just know with anything, it's a law of diminishing returns. Yeah. Yep. So. Uh, you know, and I've spent a lot of time looking at food science. So how yeah. do you choose the food that's going to 
give you the optimal amount of nutrients. Um, the, the, here's here's the sort of technical side. The longer the supply chain, yep. the less benefit you can get from something. So you do need to go and know your farmers. You do need to go to your, your grocery stores. And what, what actually I've looked at more recently is sometimes – uh, this gets to be very debated among clinicians, particularly dietitians. If you freeze food or can food, do you lose all the nutrients compared to fresh? Well, here's the thing. How long does it take for something to come out of the ground, go to a warehouse, go into you know controlled atmospheric storage, then it lingers in a box somewhere, gets to the grocery store, who knows how long it's there, yep. then it's flailing around on the shelf, and then the consumer buys it, you and I buy it, and then eh, it's kind of sitting in the refrigerator for five days. The law of diminishing returns says you're probably not going to get a lot out of that. So you do need to buy your food as fresh as you can. So you're you saying that so frozen yeah. frozen's not Frozen's, bad, no, it, it's not. And that's yeah. what I've, I've really looked at in food science. Sometimes... Yeah. That because it's done right at the field depends. Mm. You know, I don't know here in Australia, but a lot of times, you know, it's hauled out of the field within an hour. It is. Yeah. It may be flash frozen or blanched and flash frozen, and so we actually see like higher levels of polyphenols sometimes in frozen food than we, we do. do in fresh because of that supply chain. Hundred percent, and it's another yeah. interesting tip you you talked about there as well is people have been scared of microwaving food, and now just going back to that point. So with our greens, we're best off eating them raw. Chopping them up, that's your tip there? Yes. But the other thing is, like, you know, in my company, when I'm teaching the public, I say we have a cooked raw approach because not everybody loves raw broccoli, right? Mm. They just don't. They want it cooked. So one of the things to think about, if you're somebody who likes kale or some of your cabbages, so go ahead and saute them. But what you want to do, is, and we've taught chefs to do this, is add a crucifer back in as a garnish. Yep. So you can always shave daikon radish on top. You can always throw watercress on top, right? Or like the, the mustard seeds or the sprouted seeds, you know. There's a lot of ways to add back in what you lost through cooking. So we well, spoke about the basics. Now talk about the master genes and the foods that switch and determine these genes as well. Oh, uh, the master genes. Yeah, yeah that's, that's something that I've looked at. So what are master genes? They're genes that have... Um, a systemic effect on the body. So, um, so and a little bit of terminology. So, NRF two is one of the is is our fire hose in the body, and NRF NRF two is actually encoded by another gene. So, it's really what we call a transcription factor. But that gets into so much technology for people that it's just <laughs> easier to call it a gene. So, yep. NRF two. So, sulforaphane we just talked about turns on that fire hose. It's, you know, it's, it's, it extinguishes stress in the cell. Um, but the other thing that turns on that or switches that gene or that transcription factor on. Because I don't want anyone coming back and saying, look, it's really a transcription factor, Amanda. It is. We'll call it a gene for today. Yeah. Um, is a, a quercetin. So quercetin is a bioactive you find in your alliums. So if anybody is a gardener, you'll know your alliums are your chives, your garlic, leeks, onions, mm. and shallot. We call yep. them shallots. It's a little like shallots. Shallots, right. <laughs> so I grew up in England, so I, you know, I got to kind of like get my words right. Shallots, or shallots. Okay. You pronounce it different uh, depending on where you live in the States too, so shallots. Blueberries are another one and turmeric? Not, at, it's so, yeah, but, but quercetin, what, quercetin, that sorry. is probably one of the most powerful yep. antioxidants and it's far more heat stable. So the French is smart, right? Because the basis yeah. of, of the mirepoix, you know, how you create flavor for soup is you're sauteing what celery, 
um, garlic, onions, and carrots. So that quercetin um, can withstand a gentle saute, whereas sulforaphane can't. Where else do you find quercetin? Radishes. So here's a hack, okay? How many of you buy radishes without the leaves? All of us. Yeah. Aha. The leaves are far more nutrient-dense and rich in quercetin than any root. So buying radishes or buying any vegetables with their leaves on tells you how fresh that vegetable is. And remember how important that is for bioactives. Mm. So you look for your radishes with the leaves on because the leaves... Beetroot leaves as well, beet leaves. Yeah, beet mm. leaves, are, that's a whole other, we, we only in the masters right now, we haven't got to influence yeah. this, but beet leaves are, are essential, but they are, um, they are a dish, different source okay. of nutrient and bioactives. So, question also in fennel, apples, elderberries, you have elderberries here? Probably no. not. Oh, is it part of elderflower? Is that the whole thing? Yes, yeah. yes, yeah. yes. Oh, so, well, more of a northern hemisphere, like Nordic, Dan- Danish. I know the Danes have a lot of it. Yeah, it's pretty, uh, they used to grow in England too. Yeah. Mm. Uh, so up probably in northern Europe or Europe. But So quercetin is a go-to um, that will turn on that fire hose. Turmeric, like you just said. Um, there's some hacks around turmeric, but just eat it. Okay, just get it in cook there. It. You, you recommend to cook it, don't you? Uh, yeah, I do. So turmeric, yeah. and a lot of people, you know, this is something else that people will slink by in the grocery store. Like, okay, what do I do with that knobbly thing mm. like celeriac mm. or celery roots? Like, ugh, what are we going to do with that? So um, turmeric, so everything for me is about how do I get the most information out of food so it turns genes on and off? Mm. You know, what am I, what process am I trying to achieve? So, and, and that's what we need to remember. And I think where we've gone wrong, and I will, ex- even from my professional perspective, is we've, we've taught people mechanistically about food, whether it's calories or whether it's got A, C, yeah, magnesium right. or calcium in it. Who cares? Mm. What's more useful to know is how does food function in your body? What are you trying to achieve when you eat? Um, so turmeric, also when we, when we roast the root, which most of us don't, right? We may be using it um, raw. Mm. By roasting it, by applying heat to it, you actually produce more of those bioactives mm. that turn on your fire hose. It's genius, isn't it? Crazy. So what could you do? Just like you could roast it and then throw it in your smoothie. Yeah, yeah. But you can just use uh, the spice too. I mean, we don't want to get people so nervous, you know, no. that we're not going to mm. do, we're not going to get involved with our food. We're not going to do this. So it's about giving people a nice bang for their buck. So if you are going to go yeah. out there and you're going to spend that money on buying turmeric and you're just throwing it in your smoothie raw, you're wasting your money and your time comparatively to if you just threw it on and roasted it. So yeah, if you did that. But you smart. know what? There's a lot of other ways around it. Yeah. You know, it, this is just one of the those hacks. But, you know, and you, you brought up a good point because one of the blog posts I, I wrote recently was if you only had $100, mm-hmm. how would you spend it? How to would get, you? Yeah, I, you go for the crucifix and you yep. go for the alliums, yep. right? And you, you head to the spice island, you put your money into fresh herbs when you can, if you can afford it. So what yeah. herbs? Speak about herbs and spices because I know you're very much a big believer in their benefits I, as well. I am. So herbs. So um, there's a lot that we don't know yet in nutrigenomics. But what I will say is um, if you think of Mediterranean-style herbs, those are herbs. Those are the ones that have been studied the most. So what do I mean by that? Think of marjoram, oregano, basil, rosemary, thyme, the ones mm. that if you've ever been to the Mediterranean, they, walk, they, walk, they are what grow along the coast. And so those are the ones that are powerful and potent. Dill, add them. Just just use them. How the, much? Whatever. Sprinkle. Yeah, just just use them. Yep. Yeah, just because when we start getting to how much and we become like a little frenetic about yeah. food, they add fantastic flavor. 
right? So it's just, think of them as a garnish, but think of, as I say, when I'm working with clinicians, don't give out a recipe without an er uh, herb and spice because you're giving away, you're Mm. losing free medicine. Great advice. Right. So, and so the next question is, well, what if they're dried? Here's the thing. uh, And I don't know in Australia, um, but in the U.S., a lot of our grocery stores, you can bulk dispense now. Uh, Is everything here prepackaged if you're buying dried herbs? Yeah. Yeah. So you can't bulk dispense. So what we can do in the States now, and it's great, is literally you can go to the store and dispense however much you want of certain ingredients. So think about that. There's a much higher turnover, so you don't have stale product. Mm. Okay, so that's number one. Number two, the problem with dried herbs or spices, we don't know how much heat has been applied to them. What do we know about heat and bioactives? Mm. Denatures them, Mm. right? If we're going to put money into food, we want to get the best investment out of food. So, and then on the, on the spice side, we learned about turmeric root, a mm-hmm. ginger would, uh, the same thing, you know, you get more flavor out of raw food, right? Yep. Than the dried, even though it's concentrated. So with your dried spices, what I always recommend people is uh, instead of buying the ground nutmeg, buy the, buy the whole nutmeg, mm. you okay. know, and grate it um, because you have less exposure to oxidation. So to surmise that is what you're trying to do is get it as close to original source as you can and then alter it with your own skills because you know what's been done to it. Correct. So turmeric roast ginger, do you roast or you have that raw? No, I'll raw or I'll just put it right into... And I also heard when consuming turmeric, let's say making a turmeric drink like a turmeric latte to replace coffee or whatnot mm-hmm. if you want to have your adrenals have a break is putting pepper in there helps your body absorb more of the turmeric is that something it, you come across it's true but some people and this is where genomics comes in uh, that the piperine which is the bioactive pepper. in black pepper it can be very aggravating so if you're a person mm. who has any kind of dysbiosis or gut you know uh, digestive issues I wouldn't go hog wild on that right, to, to start with. If it's some people, it's fine, but others say eh, it's, it can be quite aggravating. That's more recent science. And don't forget, if you're doing your turmeric latte, please no low-fat milk. <laughs> no, we want whole fat. The Health Hacker with Adam McDougall. It's a health hacker with Adam McDougall, and we're talking to Amanda Archibald, a nutritionist who is taking us through so many hacks. It's really, I mean, there's a lot of science here, but I Mm -hmm. do love the fact that we can talk about cutting up your vegetables. And I know Adam's very keen to ask you about methodology between cooking, uh, boiling versus microwaving. Before we do, I know um, we touched on it earlier and you were going to come back around to it. We're talking about how things are grown and things with leaves like beets. And Mm -hmm. you want to talk more about understanding the roots of where that comes from, no pun intended. Yeah, right. So do you want to talk more about beets and leaves? Yeah, I will. Let's talk about beets and leaves. So how many vegetables are sold with the leaves on? Like Mm. what's happening to the tops of the vegetables? Mm. If we're trying to put our money into getting the most out of food, then somebody's throwing away the tops, right? So where are they? So we need this big campaign to bring the tops back because the leaves often have more nourishment than the root, if you think mm. about it, they're kind of like the freshest part of the vegetable where the starch is in the root and the flavor. So um, beets are in the same family as chard. Yes, Swiss chard. Yeah, yeah yes. right? Yep. Yep. It's the same family as quinoa. Mm. And it's the same family as amaranth. Do you have amaranth yeah. here? Yes. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So um, one of the most beautiful things about this family, it's called the chinope. Pedocii. I've always pronounced it wrong, but you can put that in the show notes, you know, Pedocii. Um, and that's where 
understanding food from a botanical perspective is really useful because then you could say, okay, if you can't get beets, use quinoa. You're going to get this effect out of it. So your body has, as I talk about these, these, these cycles, these biochemical cycles, and think of them like gears. And so gears have teeth, right? And when they interact like cogs in a wheel, so the, the gears or the teeth of one gear will turn the next gear, right? So one of the cycles that people may have heard about is called the methylation cycle. Have you mm. talked about that at all no, on this show? We have. I, I know about it, but some people may not have heard about it. So, so it's a very, very important central cycle in the body. We look at that this very uh, deeply with genomics because it produces something called a, quote, methyl group, which is a carbon and three hydrogens. That is like a switch that gets sent through the body or it's like a messenger that gets sent through the body that turns on and off molecules in other cycles. Why is this cycle so important? Because it's essential upstream to how you detoxify, mm. all right? It's essential to how you produce neurotransmitters or neurotransmitters neurotalkers for your brain like serotonin, melatonin, mm. dopamine that you probably heard about and how we get rid of them, how you mm. get rid of fight or flight. So suffice to say that this particular cycle is really important. One of the problems that we have as human beings is some of us, our genes don't work very well in this cycle. So you end up with a backup uh, on the road. So think about it like getting out of Sydney, Sydney right? At six o'clock in the evening, there's a backup <laughs> on one of the bridges, right? Some people are smart enough to take the site. We call it the frontage road in the state, so you know the back way around, yeah, yeah. except if you're trying to get over the bridge, right? You have to go through the tunnel or whatever. <laughs> so we call that, you know, trying to find a, a way around the mess. Betaine, so this group of foods, so betaine, amaranth, quinoa, um, chard, contain uh, beets, actually contain a molecule called betaine. Betaine helps take the side road. So when you have aberrations or spelling errors in your genes that kind of back up this cycle, you can actually eat beets and, and also you can eat eggs, or egg yolks. They contain something called choline, mm -hmm. which is, can be converted into betaine. That's your workaround. So think about that. Nobody ever told you to eat beets because it's like gets you out of the traffic jam, but they do. Mm. Genius. Uh, and yes, you can cook them. And from a selfish point of view, something <laughs> I want to know, obviously um, – Cutting the vegetables and the way we cook, I'm a big proponent of buying frozen and buying fresh when you can from mm -hmm. farm to plate. But um, one, of, one of the challenges you got, like you said, is preparation. You know, you can sometimes waste the effectiveness of food by not preparing it right. Microwaves always been demonized and I've said for a long time that certain vegetables you want to eat raw and then other vegetables we don't want to boil because obviously they're water soluble. You're going to lose a lot of the yeah, benefits. Yeah, you do, right. But microwaving, you know, it's been demonized. What, what, what's your thoughts on microwaves? So it, um, it's interesting. Uh, actually, I'm... I've looked at that a lot too because we have to meet people where they're at. Mm. And we've lost, uh, we have a generation of people who maybe don't know how to cook and, you know, they're very good with their, their index finger <laughs> and they can push the button on the microwave, right? So when you compare boiling to microwaving, <laughs> I'm gesticulating with my hands yeah. here. <laughs> um, what you actually find when you're looking at those, those polyphenols that microwaving, because it's a shorter time, can actually preserve those bioactives yeah, right. better than boiling so that's interesting but here's because we talk a lot about asian food here in australia yep. um some research some chinese researchers were also looking at what cooking methods can we teach our people because we stir fry everything and i think they boil stir fry too i'm not that familiar with all the cooking methods so they were looking at a public health guidance in china and what they actually found, and this is, is genius, is you can actually, if you were to heat a wok up, 
So it's very high heat. Then you put your cooking oil in. So that cooking oil is immediately a smoke point. Then you add your greens. So basically those greens and what you're stir frying is in and out in, what, two minutes, basically. That very high heat method can actually preserve those glucosinolates I was talking about that then can be converted so it's um, high heat so quickly. Very high heat quickly. Or what is, about low heat slowly? No. Yeah. That's that's the key. So so you've got three methods. You've got raw. Yep. You've got um, what we didn't talk about is light steaming, which I always kind of laugh at because what does that mean to anyone? Mm. You know, yeah. maybe just, two minutes. Just taking the, the stiffness out of it. Taking the stiffness out of it to make them al dente, right? So maybe two minutes. Mm. And then you've got that very high heat, heat rapid cook. Which is beautiful because, you know, that lends us into sautés and stir-fries. But the key, like you said, is you want to heat your walk-up to obviously be smart, you know. But then as soon as that oil touches, it's at smoke point. Then you put your food in two minutes and out. Right. Preserves the compound that is the base compound to produce sulforaphane. And what sort of oils do you use when you're cooking at a high So, you know, isn't that always like the the biggest conversation? So here's how I answer that. So um, in my house, sometimes I'll mix oils. I may use coconut oil. A lot of times I may use a high heat um, um, avocado oil, which you may or may not use here. Sometimes a safflower oil. So I mix some Macadamia oil. So not so much in the States. Um, You can do, not so much. So I blend the oils. But let me tell you, olive oil... When you travel, I, I've done and lived in the Mediterranean. Folks fry with olive oil. Yeah, they yeah, do. Yeah, and yeah. They just do. They're not frying. The difference is that they're, they're moving that product really fast. So I was in Italy probably a couple of years ago doing yet another olive oil tasting. And I was with a, <laughs> a group of chefs and they were laughing at how much olive oil they go through. I mean, it's nothing to go through three or four liters of olive oil a month. Okay, because it's used in everything. Yeah, yeah. And they are frying with it, but they're moving it fast. Yeah. Yeah, that's and that's the, the difference. And I don't know here in Australia, but in the United States, we have to be so careful. Sorry, United States, but it's true. We are growing some of our own olives, but what we're getting is this blended oxidized stuff. Yeah, yeah. You know, that we don't, there's no, there may be a sell-by date on it, but there's not a production date. So we don't know if it's oxidized. And that's the danger. Mm. That's the danger. When you're oils, living yeah. real close to your oil, you can yeah. go rapidly. Rapid high heat in and out. Um, and yeah. so I think we've kind of modified our oil recommendations because we're like, eh, you know, the olive oil is going to oxidize because it's not good to start with. And canola oils and vegetable oils, yeah. we now know how bad they are. Yeah, yeah. We <laughs> don't know their production methods. So. Actually, a hack for I heard about olive oil, which is the fresher the olive oil, the better. People think, oh, it's really good quality. I'll keep it for a while. No, no, no. You want it fresh. Yeah, you do. Right? And also you want to keep it away from the stove because the heat will age it quicker and away from the sun as well. So it's okay to put yeah, it in the you cupboard. Wanna, yeah, you want to buy your olive oil oil in dark bottles or I don't know if you have the big cans or big tins yeah, here. We have I mean them. that's what I do. Australia I actually it. has really great olive oil because oh. again we have so many Mediterranean um, families immigrated here long ago now. You have the right got, climate too. We've got good stuff. So the tin to protect it from the light? Yeah, tin's a good one. Is that one? Yeah, that. tin, protect it from the light and then you just keep dispensing it into your dark bottles and, yeah. and here's something again uh, growing up in the basically in Europe in the Mediterranean you, you know you spend a lot of time talking to producers because yeah, yeah. we're so close to our producers. Um, but when I was last in Italy a couple of years ago, I was in um, Tuscany. Who isn't? Yeah. <laughs> Normally, I don't go to Tuscany, but I was there hosting a program with a, a university. And we went to visit uh, one of um, the beautiful, it's Prunelli is the olive oil producer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so anyway, very, very close to Florence. And um, he does export to the United States. So again, my purview is what's going in and out of the U.S., 
And he says, you know what, if I'm ever in the United States and I ever see any of my product on the shelves, I pull it off. Or even in Italy, he said, because I can't guarantee the quality of the product because it's sitting in a supermarket with the light. With the light. Mm, right. So you always, watch, if you ever buy it at a supermarket, you go to the back. Yeah, you know, yeah, that's clever. You get it out of the light. You, uh, know, you buy it in a tin um, because it's protected and you move it fast. What a great hack. Nice. So, yeah, so what I've learned from that fast. with the cooking method is um, a combination of cooking, eating raw and cooking. Yes. They both have benefits. So you get the best of both worlds if you can if you combine the two. Yeah, think of cooked raw because sometimes you won't cook for texture and yep. flavor, right? Yeah. So well, I mean, Australians barbecue a lot. Like it's a cliche, yeah. but we really do like a barbecue. Yeah. What are your thoughts about high heat on a barbecue on a, on an open flame? Let's say, like quickly to char grill asparagus. So I it, so this is where genomics comes in because some of us have genes, and I'm one of them that it would be contraindicated to do that every single night because you produce that. Is it the, um, the acrylamide or whatever, yeah, right? Acrylamide, yeah, so the acrylamide, acrylamide. Yeah. And that's okay for some people. Mm. It's not for others. Mm. Okay, so let's circle then into that. This is about then finding out who you are and eating right for your body type, correct? Yeah, well, I think it's really important. Like, you know, we've been touching upon today. I think the problem in medicine has been we've been looking at it from a from an isolated point of view, a mono um, point of view, like in isolation, you take a vitamin or you take a supplement or you take one food and it specifically helps the heart. Whereas what we've learned today, the, the body's a very complex system. It's, it's about programmatically eating food and realizing that has a benefit on the whole system. Speaking of the whole system, gut health. Yeah. Um, can you expand on some of the, the hacks around and some tips around eating yeah. for your gut? I bet you've talked about that a lot, right? So, yeah. I mean, food is information. You you are what you absorb. Yep. You've probably said that a lot yeah. too. <laughs> so you are what you absorb. If you can't absorb, it doesn't matter how great your genes are. You yeah. don't have the food available for them. So um, I, I think one of the greatest explanations that I heard that is so much in my mind is um, your your gut is like the soil of your body. You know, just like plants need soil to grow, mm-hmm. so your body to thrive needs a healthy soil. So your gut needs seeding and feeding. Right? I love so do you that. use the seed and feed? Yeah, 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 it's great. So we seed the gut with beneficial bacteria through food, and then we have to feed them. So it's a one-two, right? So yep. food that seeds is the ancient art of fermented and cultured mm-hmm. foods, and it's it's coming back. Thank goodness. Formerly, fermented foods were a way of uh, preserving the harvest, right? Mm. They were how you used up the last milk from the goat or the sheep, right? But it turns out it's our best medicine because that, I could talk for hours about mm. this. It's, it's just such mm. thrilling, thrilling work. Fascinating, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, it is. So ancient fermented culture foods, the stuff that gets put up after the harvest, um, is the best form of the bacteria that our bodies need. So our, our ancestors were brilliant. They didn't know it necessarily, mm. um, but they were seeding our guts with um, lactobacillus bacteria, and very specific bacteria. Why they are so important is because they produce a, a series of molecules. Um, some of them you may be familiar with, uh, with as short-chain fatty acids, mm. SCFAs, butyrate, acetate, propionate. The more we study in medicine, the more we know. So why are they so important? Because they actually can communicate uh, through the lumen of the inside of our gut with our our brains, Mm. which is amazing. And so if people are struggling with with weight management, one of the first things we do in medicine is we'll we'll get a look at your GI tract or GI map, we'll call it, and we try to rebalance the bacteria because those bacteria produce these short-chain fatty acids that can actually turn on and off your appetite mechanisms. So there was a, the, what happens in your gut has a deep impact systemically in the brain. 
So that's just one example yeah. of why fermented foods are so important. Um, so they they act like neurotalkers, you know, communicating with our brain in so many ways. Um, we see a lot of dysfunctionality between the gut and some mood disorders, anxiety, depression. When the gut's out of balance, the brain's out of balance, bottom line. So those fermented and cultured foods seed the gut, right, with the right bacteria. But like I said, they need food to be able to produce those important molecules. So the kind of food they need or what you probably realize, have already heard about are pre, uh, prebiotics, mm. right? You probably talked about on the show. Yeah, keep going. It's great. Yeah. yeah. So prebiotics are like your artichokes, mm. right? Asparagus, bananas, um, what else? Apples, pears, Apples, right? right? Yeah. Wheat. Resistant uh, starch type foods. Yeah, inulin, oats. fructose, oligosaccharides, yeah. right? But get them from food, people. Yeah. <laughs> you know, don't. You know, sometimes we may use may use uh, need to add a supplement with people who are sick, mm. trying to restore their gut. But get the put the food in. So it's food a seed, first. feed. It's food first. Yeah, food it's first. It's seed, then feed. And something so, I'm passionate about is weight loss, trying to help people because it's a growing concern in our community. And obviously type 2 diabetes is going to be one of the biggest, I think, strains on our health system in the next couple of years. Um, is. You got any tips around um, how to eat to thin your waistline out? So, uh, hey, how, where do we want to start? <laughs> Let's start with the gut. Okay, yeah. like I just said, you just heard what we see clinically yep. um, was when people's guts are out of order, we have an imbalance with the, the, the right bacteria, you cannot affect weight loss if, you can't rec- if, if the gut isn't imbalanced. Because what happens, and again, you may have talked about it on your show, is the balance between the major phyla or the major kingdoms in your gut is upset. One of those um, kind of phyla is called Firmicutes. So you got bacteroidetes or bacteroidetes and formicutes. Formicutes loves calories. Mm. So when you end up with an imbalance between these major phylas, the formicutes are, are hungry and they're greedy. They love to sequester and harvest calories and stick them in your body. And there's nothing you can really do. And the worst thing is people eat bad food, which increases the production increases, of these. Yes. It's like a screaming baby. It just gets louder and louder and louder the more that it you does. feed it. does. <laughs> and sometimes even if you are being assertive with the way mm. you're eating, if we haven't rebalanced you, you're going to have that rebound effect. You're going to see some rebound. And get so, the gut healthy first is yes, key. Yes. The gut is everything. And I'm, we're at the beginning of understanding that in yeah, science. Yeah. So. So there is that, there is getting the right form of exercise, yep. right? And I, I've, I've learned that myself with, you know, the older we get, you know, getting, uh, this is something profound to me, is getting a checkup with a physical therapist, right? Uh, you, you're an athlete, right? Yeah, yeah. And what I've learned is how few of us actually go to physical therapists to correct our movement mm. so we don't exercise badly. Um, and then working with a personal trainer to optimize what's right for you. Versus what may be on the TV or the latest fad. So um, exercise is everything, but it has to be deeply personalized like food. And that's what the key to weight loss, I think, and you're, we're going to lead into that now, is with your system, is the fact that we really understand the specifics of how everyone's different. Yes. So that's why some people go on one particular diet, whether it's keto, whether Correct. it's whatever it might paleo, be, whatever. paleo, and it. Someone gets skinny and they drop weight like a rock in water, and then other people put weight they on. They can't, yes. So this is the big breakthrough in what you're doing now, it, isn't it? It is because, you know, and it, it is so funny, you know, because you, you work with people who are real bio, they're hackers. Yeah, yeah. And so I have a couple of physicians I work with in, in, in the 
Kentucky and they're, they're, they're biohackers and they're into, you know, they're just amazing. Like, what are you trying to do to yourself now? But no, it's, it's all, they're, they're brilliant physicians. Yeah. And uh, when I was with them recently, uh, one of the physicians said, yeah. So I went out to Oregon with my, with my other colleague and we just, uh, we did, we ate the exact same food for three days and then we worked out almost until they were uber, like yeah, enthusiastic, yeah. worked out until they almost threw up. He said, I'm like, well, that sounds like fun. But the bottom line is, and then they would measure their glucose and their ketones and they responded completely differently. Mm. And, um, and so one of them literally cannot handle ketosis mm. like the other. Um, and so, yeah, they could both drop weight or whatever, and externally all appears great. Yeah. But because of one of their genomics, keto doesn't work, or it's a modified keto. I would be the, exactly the same way. Your lipids would go through the roof. Uh, yeah, exactly. I'm yeah. the same way. Yeah. I, my genes will not allow a heavy saturated fat load. Yeah. Not that that is what keto is. Um, but we can modify. And so, you know, we can look great on the outside, but it's on the inside. And we talked about that earlier. That's what's so important. And we can see that genes, immediately when I look at genes, I'll say, okay, I want to get this lab, this lab, this lab. It tells us what biomarkers to look at, which tells us how, what to do with food. And tells us with supplements as well, doesn't it? Because a lot of people some now Some people uh, do need supplements, yeah, yeah. And some people, but I'm saying that's the great thing about the testing is that you know specifically what you need. You do. So now people are blindly going around taking vitamin D. Correct. or It's a waste of money. It's a hormone and wasting money and obviously putting their health at risk. And this is where the testing that you're bringing in is going to be so helpful yes. and effective. Yes. Because yeah. genomics is the best, as we say, it's the best signpost in the medical toolkit. It tells us exactly where to look. So we're not guessing. I mean, how many of us have been to doctors like, okay, well, let's just run this as, eh, you're normal. Yeah. I'm not normal. I feel terrible. <laughs> yeah. I feel awful. So all roads of this conversation culminate here. So then how, how are we going to measure our bodies and continue to test and measure them moving forward? Great questions. You know, what's the natural process for curiosity, for the curious? Yeah. And so, right? I mean, what do you do next? And so, um, you know, I kind of looked at that as a process for myself as a clinician, but also as a company. So the first thing is if you want to learn more, right, read <laughs> and learn. So so I have a, a blog on my website, genomickitchen.com. It's a great blog, by the way. Congratulations. Thank you. Very yeah. Good. And it, it's, it's for those who are curious. So like, okay, where can I learn more without committing? Then the next thing we did is we created two courses. So they're online self-paced forever courses. And one is if you're absolutely geeky, like you two, right? <laughs> like you want to like, I'm going to sit there for 12 hours. This is amazing. I have a really deep dive into um, genomics. You know, what can I do if I don't want a genomic test? How can I learn everything and from the food uh, all the way through to preparation? How does this work in my body? If you're one of those people who's like, Nit, I love this idea, but you got to pack it up super, super fast. I did the same thing. It's called the Genomic Kitchen Express course. Just go to my website under individuals and you'll find that. It, find these sources and then you can just sit back and, and, and learn pretty much everything that's coming out of my mouth super fast. Um, and then the other thing is, you know, that we, I did this slowly, but for, in the United States, I'll speak from that. Uh, first of all, in the U.S., um, I open, I'm opening up the opportunity to work with us um, because the, the thing about genomics, for those of you who want to go like the, the ninth, from the 95th to 100th percentile, it's not everyone, getting your own genomic test is the best thing you can do because we call it the NF1. This means you are a unique individual and you want to go to a trusted source. Uh, so somebody who's had the clinical training and the certification to be able to read your genomics and guide you. 
and, and that's what's critical. So we can do that in the United States. Um, and in Australia, I, the main thing is if you want to get a genomic test, you need to find or ask your uh, provider, you know, if they are trained in nutrigenomics or genomics because you're interested in it. So I've worked all over the world looking at genomic testing. So we get really, really picky um, about which company and who have, what's the validity of the science? And that's what you want. Um, and so this is an emerging field. But here in Australia, um, you have a company, Biosuticals. Um, they are training clinicians. So these are trained clinicians, uh, mostly NDs, MDs, some dietitians, to be able to um, offer a genomic test and uh, interpret that for you. So you want to go with a trained clinician. And I like them so much that I've actually been beating on them to come to the United States. So we have plenty of genomic testing companies, but I'm after the Australian one because of their, the level of their science and their research and their team. Well, I'm getting a test done this afternoon after this podcast, so I'll be able to report back on my findings. Yeah, and I'm hoping to interpret that for you <laughs> <I'm looking laughs> from the U.S. That. for an Australian <laughs> Can I grow my company. Hair back? <laughs> it's very, very insightful what you find. Yeah, maybe you never know. I've seen, I don't think they're testing for that gene. Yeah, <laughs> but you know it, what, what genomics does is it uncover it. What, what I found working with it is it explains a lot of things for people who are like that doesn't feel quite right. Or I, I suspected this. The genomics of your genes never lie. They tell the story of who you are. I learned so much. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Health Hacker was created in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Written and presented by Adam McDougall. Produced and presented by Alex Mitchell. Audio production by Darcy Thompson. To listen to more episodes, search Health Hacker Podcast. Listen for free at podcastoneaustralia.com.au or download the Podcast One Australia app. <laughs>